Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster.
Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I've got another really snoozy sci-fi story for you to doze off to tonight. But before we get to the bedtime reading, I just want to profoundly thank all of our brand new patrons on patreon.com, which is a site where you can go and pledge a couple bucks to hear an ad-free version of the show. So, this week's wonderful patrons, Mary Ann Benson, George Andrews, Ann Erickson, Leah Sachs, Leslie Rowan, Henry Waddell, Trina Mann, S. Sonny, Jenna Gaspaderak, Verla Vieira, Crystal Marnell, Paige Curiel, and Tracy Burnett. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making the show. It really, really means a lot. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, all these names that I just read are brand new patrons of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a website where you can support creators of the work that you like directly. So if you uh, like the Sleepy podcast and have made it part of your nightly routine, and consider going to patreon.com slash sleepyradio and donating even a dollar a month. That goes a really long way. At $2 a month, you get access to the ad-free version of the show. Uh, $5 a month, you get access to our poetry feed, which is over 50 extra poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast. Um, and But no matter how much you donate, even if it's $1, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show, after you do. So, thank you all to our new patrons again. And if you uh, want to be a, a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepyradio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kana. So, I really, really loved reading this sci-fi um, from H. Beam Piper in the past couple weeks on the show, which is a book that was written and published in the 60s, which is about 30 or 40 years later than anything that we've read on the show before, but it is in the public domain, so it was a really nice treat to read it's nice to switch it up and do some sci-fi and have some uh, fiction about space and robots and all that. Um, and uh, he was pretty prolific, so we're going to be reading another one of his works today called Space Viking. I really enjoyed reading this. Um, this, again, is a book that I would probably uh, pick up and read 
not to go to sleep on my free time. Just really love the writing. But uh, I think you're definitely going to like going to sleep to this one. So without further ado, Space Viking by H. Beam Piper. You're going to hear the first couple chapters of this book read once so you can fall deep asleep and then they will repeat themselves so you can stay deep asleep. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1 They stood together at the parapet, their arms about each other's waists, her head against his cheek. Behind, the broad-leaved shrubbery gossiped softly with the wind, and from the lower main terrace came music and laughing voices. The city of Wardshaven spread in front of them, white buildings rising from the wide spaces of green treetops under a shimmer of sun-reflecting air cars above. Far away, the mountains were violet in the afternoon haze, and the huge red sun hung in a sky as yellow as a ripe peach. His eye caught a twinkle ten miles to the southwest, and for an instant he was puzzled. Then he frowned. The sunlight on the 2,000-foot globe of Duke Angus's new ship, the Enterprise, back at the Gorham shipyards after her final trial cruise. He didn't want to think about that now. Instead, he pressed the girl closer and whispered her name, Elaine, and then caressing every syllable, Lady Elaine, Trask of Traskin. Oh no, Lucas. Her protest was half-joking and half-apprehensive. It's bad luck to be called by your married name before the wedding. I've been calling you that in my mind since the night of the Duke's Ball, when you were just home from school on Excalibur. She looked up from the corner of her eye. That was when I started calling me that too, she confessed. There's a terrace to the west at Traskin Newhouse, he told her. Tomorrow we'll have our dinner there and watch the sunset together. I know. I thought that was to be our sunset watching place. You have been peeking, he accused. Traskin Newhouse was to be your surprise. I always was a present peeker. New Year's and my birthdays but I only saw it from the air. I'll be very surprised at everything inside, she promised, and very delighted. And when she'd seen everything, and Trask and Newhouse wasn't a surprise anymore, 
they take a long space trip. He hadn't mentioned that to her yet. To some of the other sword worlds. Excalibur, of course, and Morglai, and Flamberge, and Durandal. No, not Durandal. The war had started there again. But they'd have so much fun. And she would see clear blue skies again, and stars at night. The cloud veil hid the stars from Graham, and Elaine had missed them since coming home from Excalibur. The shadow of an air car fell briefly upon them, and they looked up and turned their heads in time to see it sink with graceful dignity toward the landing stage of Carvel House, and he glimpsed its blazonry, sword and atom symbol, the badge of the Ducal House of War. He wondered if it were Duke Angus himself, or just some of his people come ahead of him. They should get back to their guests, he supposed. Then he took her in his arms and kissed her, and she responded ardently. It must have been all of five minutes since they'd done that before. A slight cough behind them brought them apart and their heads around. It was Cesar Carvel, gray-haired and portly, the breast of his blue coat gleaming with orders and decorations and the sapphire and the pommel of his dress dagger twinkling. I thought I'd find you two here, Elaine's father smiled. You'll have tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow together. But need I remind you that today we have guests and more coming every minute. Who came in the ward car? Elaine asked. Rovard Grafis and Otto Harkerman. You never met him, did you, Lucas? No, not by introduction. I'd like to before he spaces out. He had nothing against Harkerman personally, only against what he represented. Is the Duke coming? Oh, surely. Lionel of New Haven and the Lord of Northport are coming with him. They're at the palace now. Carval hesitated. His nephew's back in town. Elaine was distressed. She started to say, Oh dear, I hope he doesn't. Has Dunman been bothering Elaine again? Nothing to take notice of. He was here yesterday, demanding to speak with her. We got him to leave without too much unpleasantness. It'll be something for me to take notice of if he keeps it up after tomorrow. For his seconds and Andre Dunnan's, that was. He hoped it wouldn't come to that. He didn't want to have to shoot a kinsman to the house of war and a crazy man to boot. I'm terribly sorry for him, Elaine was saying. Father, you should have let me talk to him. I might have made him understand. Cesar Carvel was shocked. Child, you couldn't have subjected yourself to that. The man is insane. 
Then he saw her bare shoulders and was even more shocked. Elaine, your shawl. Her hands went up and couldn't find it. She looked about it in confused embarrassment. Amused, Lucas picked it up from the shrub onto which she had tossed it and draped it over her shoulders, his hands lingering briefly. Then he gestured to the older man to precede them, and they entered the arbored walk. At the other end, in an open circle, a fountain played. White marble girls and boys bathing in the jade green basin. Another piece of loot from one of the old Federation planets. That was something he tried to avoid in furnishing Trask a new house. There'd be a lot of that coming to Graham after Otto Harkeman took the Enterprise to space. I'll have to come back sometime and visit them, Elaine whispered to him. You wait till tomorrow. I'm going to put a word in the Duke's ear about that fellow, Cesar Carval, still thinking of Dunnan, was saying. If he speaks to him, maybe it'll do some good. I doubt it. I don't think Duke Angus has any influence over him at all. Dunnan's mother had been the Duke's younger sister. From his father, he had inherited what had originally been a prosperous barony. Now, it was mortgaged to the top of the manor house aerial mast. The Duke had once assumed Dunnan's debts and refused to do so again. Dunnan had gone to space a few times as a junior officer on trade and raid voyages into the old Federation. He was supposed to be a fair astrogator. He had expected his uncle to give him command of the Enterprise, which had been ridiculous. Disappointed in that, he had recruited a mercenary company and was seeking military employment. It was suspected that he was in correspondence with his uncle's worst enemy, Duke Omfrey of Glasspeth. And he was obsessively in love with Elaine Carval, a passion which seemed to nourish itself on its own hopelessness. Maybe it would be a good idea to take that space trip right away. There ought to be a ship leaving Bigler's port for one of the other sword worlds before long. They paused at the head of the escalators. The garden below was thronged with guests, the bright shawls of the ladies and the coats of men making shifting color patterns among the flower beds and on the lawns and under the trees. Serving robots, flame yellow and black in the carval colors, floated about playing soft music and offering refreshments. There was a continuous spiral of changing costume color around the circular robo-table. Voices babbled happily like a mountain river. As they stood looking down, another air car circled low, green and gold, lettered pan-planet news service. 
Cesar Carval swore in irritation. Didn't there used to be something called privacy, he asked. It's a big story, Cesar. It was. More than the marriage of two people who happened to be in love with each other. It was the marriage of the farming and ranching barony of Traskin and the Carval steel mills. More, it was public announcement that the well and fighting men of both baronies were now aligned behind Duke Angus of Wardshaven. So, it was a general holiday. Every industry had closed down at noon today, but would be closed until the morning after next, and there would be dancing every park, and there would be dancing in every park, and feasting in every tavern. To sword world earth, any excuse for a holiday was better than none. There are people, Cesar. They have a right to have a good time with us. I know everybody at Traskin is watching this by screen. He raised his hand and waved to the news car. And when it swung its pickup around, he waved again. Then they went down the long escalator. Lady Lavina Carval was the center of a cluster of matrons and dowagers, around which tomorrow's bridesmaids fluttered like many colored butterflies. She took possession of her daughter and dragged her into the feminine circle. He saw a rover Grafis, small and saturnine. Duke Angus's henchman and Bert Sanderson. Lady Lavina's brother. They spoke, and then an upper servant, his tabard blazoned with the yellow flame and black hammer of Carval Mills, approached his master with some tale of domestic crisis, and the two went away together. You haven't met Captain Harkeman, Lucas, Rovar Grafis said. I wish you'd come over and say hello and have a drink with him. I know your attitude, but he's a good sort. Personally, I wish we had a few like him around here. That was his main objection. There were fewer and fewer men of that sort on any of the sword worlds. Chapter 2 A dozen men clustered around the bartending robot. His cousin and family lawyer, Nikolay Trask, Lothar Fail, the banker, Alex Gorham, the shipbuilder, and his son, Basil. Baron Rathmore, more of the ward-shaven nobles whom he knew only distantly, and Otto Harkeman. Harkeman, was a space viking. That would have set him apart, even if he hadn't topped the tallest of them by a head. He wore a short black jacket, heavily gold-braided, and black trousers inside ankle boots. The dagger on his belt was no mere dress ornament. 
His tousled red-brown hair was long enough to furnish extra padding in a combat helmet, and his beard was cut square at the bottom. He had been fighting on Durandal, for one of the branches of the royal house contesting fratricidally for the throne. The wrong one. He had lost his ship, and most of his men, and almost his own life. He had been a penniless refuge on Flamberge, owning only the clothes he stood in and his personal weapons and the loyalty of half a dozen adventurers as penniless as himself when Duke Angus had invited him to Graham to command the Enterprise. A pleasure, Lord Trask. I have met your lovely bride-to-be, and now that I meet you, let me congratulate both. Then, as they were having a drink together, he put his foot in it by asking, You're not an investor in the Tanith adventure, are you? He said he wasn't, and would have let it go at that. Young Basil Gorham had to get his foot in too. Lord Trask does not approve of the Tanith adventure, he said scornfully. He thinks we should stay home and produce well instead of exporting robbery and murder to the old Federation for it. A smile remained on Otto Harkerman's face. Only the friendliness was gone. He unobtrusively shifted his drink to his left hand. Well, our operations are definable as robbery and murder, he agreed. Space Vikings are professional robbers and murderers. And you object? Perhaps you find me personally objectionable. I wouldn't have taken your hand or had a drink with you if I did. I don't care how many planets you raid or cities you sack or how many innocents, if that's what they are, you massacre in the old Federation. You couldn't possibly do anything worse than those people have been doing to one another for the past ten centuries. What I object to is the way you're raiding the sword world. You're crazy, Basil Gorham exploded. Young man, Harkerman reproved. The conversation was between Lord Trask and myself. And when somebody makes a statement you don't understand, don't tell him he's crazy. Ask him what he means. What do you mean, Lord Trask? You should know. You've just raided Graham for 800 of our best men. You raided me for close to 40 vaqueros, farm workers, lumbermen, machine operators, and I doubt I'll be able to replace them with as good. He turned to the elder Gorham. Alex, how many have you lost to Captain Harkiman? Gorham tried to make it a dozen. Pressed, he admitted to a score and a half. Roboticians, machine supervisors, programmers, a couple of engineers, a foreman. There was grudging agreement from the others. Bert Sanderson's engine works had almost as many of the same kind. Even Lothar Fale admitted to losing a computerman 
and a guard sergeant. And after they were gone, the farms and ranches and factories would go on. Almost, but not quite as before. Nothing on Graham, nothing on any of the sword worlds was done efficiently as three centuries ago. The whole level of sword world life was sinking, like the east coastline of this continent, so slowly as to be evident only from the records and monuments of the past. He said as much, and added, and the genetic loss. The best sword world genes are literally escaping to space, like the atmosphere of a low-gravity planet, each generation begotten by father slightly inferior to the last. It wasn't so bad when the space Vikings raided directly from the sword worlds. They got home once in a while. Now they're conquering planets in the old Federation for bases and staying there. Everybody had begun to relax. This wouldn't be a quarrel. Harkerman, who had shifted his drink back to his right hand, chuckled. That's right. I fathered my share of brats in the old Federation, and I know space Vikings whose fathers were born on old Federation planets. He turned to Basil Gorham. You see, the gentleman isn't crazy at all. That's what's happened to the Terran Federations, by the way. The good men all left to colonize, and the stuffed shirts and yes-men and herd followers and safety-firsters stayed on Terra and tried to govern the galaxy. Well, maybe this is all new to you, Captain, Rover Groffis said sourly. But Lucas Trask's dirge for the decline and fall of the sword worlds is an old song to the rest of us. I have too much to do to stay here and argue. Lothar Fail evidently did intend to stay and argue. All you're saying, Lucas, is that we're expanding. You want us to sit here and build up population pressure like Terra in the first century? With three and a half billion people spread out on twelve planets, they had that many on Terra alone, and it took us eight centuries to reach that. That had been since the ninth century, atomic era, at the end of the big war. Ten thousand men and women on Abigor, refusing to surrender, had taken the remnant of the System States Alliance Navy to space seeking a world the Federation had never heard of and wouldn't find for a long time. That had been the world they had called Excalibur. From it, their grandchildren had colonized Joyous and Durandal and Flamberge. Alteclair had been colonized in the next generation from Joyous and Graham from Alteclair. We're not expanding, Lothar. We're contracting. We stopped expanding 350 years ago when that ship came back to Morgue from the old Federation and reported what had been happening out there since the big war. Before that, we were discovering new planets and colonizing them. 
Since then, we've been picking the bones of the dead Terran Federation. Something was going on by the escalators to the landing stage. People were moving excitedly in that direction, and the new cars were circling like vultures over a sick cow. Harkerman wondered, hopefully, if it mightn't be a fight. Some drunk being bounced. Nikolai, Lucas's cousin, commented. Cesar's let all ward shave it in here today. But Lucas, this Tanith adventure, we're not making any hit and run raid. We're taking over a whole planet. It'll be another sword world in 40 or 50 years. Inside another century, we'll conquer the whole Federation, Baron Rathmore declared. He was a politician and never let exaggeration worry him. What I don't understand, Harkiman said, is why you support Duke Genghis, Lord Trask, if you think the Tanith adventure is doing Graham so much harm. If Angus didn't do it, somebody else would. But Angus is going to make himself king of Graham, and I don't think anybody else could do that. This planet needs a single sovereignty. I don't know how much you've seen of it outside this duchy, but don't take Wardshaven as typical. Some of these duchies, like Glasspith or Didricksburg, are literal snake pits. All the major barons are at each other's throats and they can't even keep their own knights and petty barons in order. Why, there's a miserable little war down in South Main Continent that's been going on for over two centuries. That's probably where Dunman's going to take that army of his, a robot manufacturing baron said. I hope it gets wiped out, and Dunman with it. You don't have to go to South Main. Just go to Glasspit, someone else said. Well, if we don't get a planetary monarch to keep order, this planet will decivilize like anything in the old Federation. Oh, come, Lucas, Alex Gorham protested. That's pulling it out too far. Yes, for one thing, we don't have the Neo-Barbarians, somebody said. And if they ever came out here, We'd blow them to MC Square and nothing flat. Might be a good thing if they did, too. Who would stop us squabbling among ourselves? Arkerman looked at him in surprise. Just who do you think the Neo-Barbarians are, anyhow, he asked. Some race of invading nomads? Attila's Huns and spaceships? Well... Isn't that who they are? Gorham asked. Niflheim, no. There are a dozen and a half planets of the old Federation that still have hyperdrive, and they're all civilized. That's if civilized is what Gilgamesh is, he added. These are homemade barbarians. Workers and peasants who revolted to seize and divide the wealth and then found they'd smashed the means of production and killed off all the technical brains. Survivors on planets hit during the interstellar wars 
from the 11th to the 13th centuries who lost the machinery of civilization. Followers of political leaders on local dictatorship planets. Companies of mercenaries thrown out of employment and living by pillage. Religious fanatics following self-anointed prophets. You think we don't have plenty of neo-barbarian material here on Graham? Trask demanded. If you do, take a look around. Glasspeth, somebody said. That collection of overripe gallows fruit Andre Dunnan's recruited, Rathmore mentioned. Alex Gorham was grumbling that his shipyard was full of them. Agitators stirring up trouble, trying to organize a strike to get rid of the robots. Yes, Harkerman pounced on that last. I know of at least 40 instances on a dozen and a half planets in the last eight centuries of anti-technological movements. They had them back on Terra, back as far as the second century pre-atomic. And after Venus seceded from the First Federation, the Second Federation was organized. You're interested in history, Rathmore asked. A hobby. All spacemen have hobbies. There's very little work aboard the ship in hyperspace. Boredom is the worst enemy. My guns and missiles officer, Van Larch, is a painter. Most of his work was lost with the Coruscant on Durandal, but he kept us from starving a few times on Flambeurs by painting pictures and selling them. My hyperspatial astrogator, Guat Kirby, composes music. He tries to express the mathematics of hyperspatial theory in musical terms. I don't care much for it myself, he admitted. I study history, you know. It's odd. Practically everything that's happened on any of the inhabited planets happened on Terra before the first spaceship. The garden immediately around them was quiet now. Everybody was over by the landing stage escalators. Harkerman would have said more, but at that moment, he saw half a dozen of Cesar Carval's uniformed guardsmen run past. They were helmeted, men in bulletproofs. One of them had an auto rifle, and the rest carried knobbed plastic truncheons. The space viking set down his drink. Let's go, he said. Our host is calling up his troops. I think the guests ought to find battle stations, too. Chapter One They stood together at the parapet, their arms about each other's waists, her head against his cheek. Behind... The broad-leaved shrubbery gossiped softly with the wind, and from the lower main terrace came music and laughing voices. The city of Wardshaven spread in front of them, white buildings rising from the wide spaces of green treetops under a shimmer of sun-reflecting air cars above. 
Far away, the mountains were violet in the afternoon haze, and the huge red sun hung in a sky as yellow as a ripe peach. His eye caught a twinkle ten miles to the southwest, and for an instant he was puzzled. Then he frowned. The sunlight on the 2,000-foot globe of Duke Angus's new ship, the Enterprise, back at the Gorham shipyards after her final trial cruise. He didn't want to think about that now. Instead, he pressed the girl closer and whispered her name, Elaine, and then caressing every syllable, Lady Elaine, Trask of Traskin. Oh no, Lucas. Her protest was half-joking and half-apprehensive. It's bad luck to be called by your married name before the wedding. I've been calling you that in my mind since the night of the Duke's Ball, when you were just home from school on Excalibur. She looked up from the corner of her eye. That was when I started calling me that too, she confessed. There's a terrace to the west at Traskin Newhouse, he told her. Tomorrow we'll have our dinner there and watch the sunset together. I know. I thought that was to be our sunset watching place. You have been peeking, he accused. Traskin Newhouse was to be your surprise. I always was a present peeker. New Year's and my birthdays but I only saw it from the air. I'll be very surprised at everything inside, she promised, and very delighted. And when she'd seen everything, and Traskin Newhouse wasn't a surprise anymore, they'd take a long space trip. He hadn't mentioned that to her yet. To some of the other sword worlds, Excalibur, of course, and Morglay, and Flamberge, and Durandal, no, not Durandal. The war had started there again. But they'd have so much fun. And she would see clear blue skies again and stars at night. The cloud veil hid the stars from Graham and Elaine had missed them since coming home from Excalibur. The shadow of an air car fell briefly upon them and they looked up and turned their heads in time to see it sink with graceful dignity toward the landing stage of Carvel House, and he glimpsed its blazonry, sword and atom symbol, the badge of the Ducal House of Ward. He wondered if it were Duke Angus himself, or just some of his people come ahead of him. They should get back to their guests, he supposed. Then he took her in his arms and kissed her, and she responded ardently. It must have been all of five minutes since they'd done that before. A slight cough behind them brought them apart and their heads around. It was Cesar Carvel, gray-haired and portly, the breast of his blue coat gleaming with orders and decorations and the sapphire and the pommel of his dress dagger twinkling. 
I thought I'd find you two here. Elaine's father smiled. You'll have tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow together. But need I remind you that today we have guests and more coming every minute. Who came in the ward car? Elaine asked. Rovard Grafis and Otto Harkamuth. You never met him, did you, Lucas? No, not by introduction. I'd like to before he spaces out. He had nothing against Harkaman personally, only against what he represented. Is the Duke coming? Oh, surely. Lionel of New Haven and the Lord of Northport are coming with him. They're at the palace now. Carval hesitated. His nephew's back in town. Elaine was distressed. She started to say, Oh dear, I hope he doesn't. Has Dunman been bothering Elaine again? Nothing to take notice of. He was here yesterday, demanding to speak with her. We got him to leave without too much unpleasantness. It'll be something for me to take notice of if he keeps it up after tomorrow. For his seconds and Andre Dunnan's, that was. He hoped it wouldn't come to that. He didn't want to have to shoot a kinsman to the house of war and a crazy man to boo. I'm terribly sorry for him, Elaine was saying. Father, you should have let me talk to him. I might have made him understand. Cesar Carvel was shocked. Child, you couldn't have subjected yourself to that. The man is insane. Then he saw her bare shoulders and was even more shocked. Elaine, your shawl. Her hands went up and couldn't find it. She looked about it in confused embarrassment. Amused, Lucas picked it up from the shrub onto which she had tossed it and draped it over her shoulders, his hands lingering briefly. Then he gestured to the older man to precede them, and they entered the arbored walk. At the other end, in an open circle, a fountain played. White marble girls and boys bathing in the jade-green basin. Another piece of loot from one of the old Federation planets. That was something he tried to avoid in furnishing Trask a new house. There'd be a lot of that coming to Graham after Otto Harkeman took the Enterprise to space. I'll have to come back sometime and visit them, Elaine whispered to him. You wait till tomorrow. I'm going to put a word in the Duke's ear about that fellow, Cesar Carval, still thinking of Dunnan, was saying. If he speaks to him, maybe it'll do some good. I doubt it. I don't think Duke Angus has any influence over him at all. Dunnan's mother had been the Duke's younger sister. From his father, he had inherited what had originally been a prosperous barony. Now, 
It was mortgaged to the top of the manor house aerial mast. The Duke had once assumed Dunnan's debts and refused to do so again. Dunnan had gone to space a few times as a junior officer on trade and raid voyages into the old Federation. He was supposed to be a fair astrogator. He had expected his uncle to give him command of the Enterprise, which had been ridiculous. Disappointed in that, he had recruited a mercenary company and was seeking military employment. It was suspected that he was in correspondence with his uncle's worst enemy, Duke Omfrey of Glasspeth. And he was obsessively in love with Elaine Carval, a passion which seemed to nourish itself on its own hopelessness. Maybe it would be a good idea to take that space trip right away. There ought to be a ship leaving Biglersport for one of the other sword worlds before long. They paused at the head of the escalators. The garden below was thronged with guests, the bright shawls of the ladies and the coats of men making shifting color patterns among the flower beds and on the lawns and under the trees. Serving robots, flame yellow and black in the carval colors, floated about playing soft music and offering refreshments. There was a continuous spiral of changing costume color around the circular robo-table. Voices babbled happily like a mountain river. As they stood looking down, another air car circled low. Green and gold, lettered Pan Planet News Service. Cesar Carval swore in irritation. Didn't there used to be something called privacy, he asked. It's a big story, Cesar. It was. More than the marriage of two people who happened to be in love with each other. It was the marriage of the farming and ranching barony of Traskin and the Carval steel mills. More, it was public announcement that the wealth and fighting men of both baronies were now aligned behind Duke Angus of Wardshaven. So, it was a general holiday. Every industry had closed down at noon today, but would be closed until the morning after next, and there would be dancing in every park, and there would be dancing in every park, and feasting in every tavern. To sword worlders, any excuse for a holiday was better than none. There are people, Cesar. They have a right to have a good time with us. I know everybody at Traskin is watching this by screen. He raised his hand and waved to the news car. And when it swung its pickup around, he waved again. Then they went down the long escalator. Lady Lavina Carval was the center of a cluster of matrons and dowagers, around which tomorrow's bridesmaids fluttered like many colored butterflies. She took possession of her daughter, 
and dragged her into the feminine circle. He saw a rover Grophis, small and saturnine. Duke Angus's henchman and Burr Sanderson, Lady Lavina's brother. They spoke, and then an upper servant, his tabard blazoned with the yellow flame and black hammer of Carval Mills, approached his master with some tale of domestic crisis, and the two went away together. You haven't met Captain Harkeman, Lucas, Rovar Grafis said. I wish you'd come over and say hello and have a drink with him. I know your attitude, but he's a good sort. Personally, I wish we had a few like him around here. That was his main objection. There were fewer and fewer men of that sort on any of the sword worlds. Chapter 2 A dozen men clustered around the bartending robot. His cousin and family lawyer, Nicolay Trask, Lothar Fale, the banker, Alex Gorham, the shipbuilder, and his son, Basil. Baron Rathmore, more of the ward-shaven nobles whom he knew only distantly and Otto Harkeman. Harkeman was a space viking. That would have set him apart, even if he hadn't topped the tallest of them by a head. He wore a short black jacket, heavily gold-braided, and black trousers inside ankle boots. The dagger on his belt was no mere dress ornament. His tousled red-brown hair was long enough to furnish extra padding in a combat helmet, and his beard was cut square at the bottom. He had been fighting on Durandal, for one of the branches of the royal house contesting fratricidally for the throne. The wrong one. He had lost his ship, and most of his men, and almost his own life. He had been a penniless refuge on Flamberge, owning only the clothes he stood in and his personal weapons and the loyalty of half a dozen adventurers as penniless as himself when Duke Angus had invited him to Graham to command the Enterprise. A pleasure, Lord Trask. I've met your lovely bride-to-be, and now that I meet you, let me congratulate both. Then, as they were having a drink together, he put his foot in it by asking, You're not an investor in the Tanith adventure, are you? He said he wasn't, and would have let it go at that. Young Basil Gorham had to get his foot in too. Lord Trask does not approve of the Tanith adventure, he said scornfully. He thinks we should stay home and produce well instead of exporting robbery and murder to the old Federation for it. A smile remained on Otto Harkerman's face. Only the friendliness was gone. He unobtrusively shifted his drink to his left hand. 
Well, our operations are definable as robbery and murder, he agreed. Space Vikings are professional robbers and murderers. And you object? Perhaps you find me personally objectionable. I wouldn't have taken your hand or had a drink with you if I did. I don't care how many planets you raid or cities you sack or how many innocents, if that's what they are, you massacre in the old Federation. You couldn't possibly do anything worse than those people have been doing to one another for the past ten centuries. What I object to is the way you're raiding the sword world. You're crazy, Basil Gorham exploded. Young man, Harkerman reproved. The conversation was between Lord Trask and myself. And when somebody makes a statement you don't understand, don't tell him he's crazy. Ask him what he means. What do you mean, Lord Trask? You should know. You've just raided Graham for 800 of our best men. You raided me for close to 40 vaqueros, farm workers, lumbermen, machine operators, and I doubt I'll be able to replace them with as good. He turned to the elder Gorham. Alex, how many have you lost to Captain Harkiman? Gorham tried to make it a dozen. Pressed, he admitted to a score and a half. Roboticians, machine supervisors, programmers, a couple of engineers, a foreman. There was grudging agreement from the others. Bert Sanderson's engine works had almost as many of the same kind. Even Lothar Fail admitted to losing a computerman and a guard sergeant. And after they were gone, the farms and ranches and factories would go on. Almost, but not quite as before. Nothing on Graham, nothing on any of the sword worlds was done efficiently as three centuries ago. The whole level of sword world life was sinking like the east coastline of this continent, so slowly as to be evident only from the records and monuments of the past. He said as much, and added, and the genetic loss. The best sword world genes are literally escaping to space, like the atmosphere of a low-gravity planet, each generation begotten by farther slightly inferior to the last. It wasn't so bad when the space vikings raided directly from the sword worlds. We got home once in a while. Now they're conquering planets in the old federation for bases and staying there. Everybody had begun to relax. This wouldn't be a quarrel. Harkerman, who had shifted his drink back to his right hand, chuckled. That's right. I fathered my share of brats in the Old Federation, and I know space Vikings whose fathers were born on Old Federation planets. He turned to Basil Gorham. You see, the gentleman isn't crazy at all. That's what's happened to the Terran Federations, by the way. The good men all left to colonize, 
and the stuffed shirts and yes-men and herd followers and safety-firsters stayed on Terra and tried to govern the galaxy. Well, maybe this is all new to you, Captain, Rover Groffis said sourly. But Lucas Trask's dirge for the decline and fall of the sword worlds is an old song to the rest of us. I have too much to do to stay here and argue. Lothar Fail evidently did intend to stay and argue. All you're saying, Lucas, is that we're expanding. You want us to sit here and build up population pressure like Terra in the first century? With three and a half billion people spread out on twelve planets, they had that many on Terra alone, and it took us eight centuries to reach that. That had been since the ninth century, atomic era, at the end of the big war. Ten thousand men and women on Abigor, refusing to surrender, had taken the remnant of the System States Alliance Navy to space, seeking a world the Federation had never heard of and wouldn't find for a long time. That had been the world they had called Excalibur. From it, their grandchildren had colonized Joyous and Durandal and Flamberg. Alteclair had been colonized in the next generation from Joyous and Graham from Alteclair. We're not expanding, Lothar. We're contracting. We stopped expanding 350 years ago when that ship came back to Morglay from the old Federation and reported what had been happening out there since the big war. Before that, we were discovering new planets and colonizing them. Since then, we've been picking the bones of the dead Terran Federation. Something was going on by the escalators to the landing stage. People were moving excitedly in that direction, and the new cars were circling like vultures over a sick cow. Harkerman wondered, hopefully, if it mightn't be a fight. Some drunk being bounced. Nikolai, Lucas's cousin, commented, Cesar's let all Ward shave it in here today. But Lucas, this Tanith adventure, we're not making any hit and run raid. We're taking over a whole planet. It'll be another sword world in 40 or 50 years. Inside another century, we'll conquer the whole Federation, Baron Rathmore declared. He was a politician and never let exaggeration worry him. What I don't understand, Harkiman said, is why you support Duke Angus, Lord Trask, if you think the Tanith adventure is doing Graham so much harm. If Angus didn't do it, somebody else would. But Angus is going to make himself king of Graham, and I don't think anybody else could do that. This planet needs a single sovereignty. I don't know how much you've seen of it outside this duchy, but don't take Wardshaven as typical. Some of these duchies, like Glasspith or Didrixburg, are literal snake pits. 
All the major barons are at each other's throats, and they can't even keep their own knights and petty barons in order. Why, there's a miserable little war down in South Main Continent that's been going on for over two centuries. That's probably where Dunman's going to take that army of his, the robot manufacturing baron said. I hope it gets wiped out, and Dunman with it. You don't have to go to South Main. Just go to Glasspit, someone else said. Well, if we don't get a planetary monarch to keep order, this planet will decivilize like anything in the old Federation. Oh, come, Lucas, Alex Gorham protested. That's pulling it out too far. Yes, for one thing, we don't have the Neo-Barbarians, somebody said. And if they ever came out here, we'd blow them to MC Square and nothing flat. Might be a good thing if they did, too. It would stop us squabbling among ourselves. Arkerman looked at him in surprise. Just who do you think the Neo-Barbarians are, anyhow, he asked. Some race of invading nomads? Attila's Huns and spaceships? Well, isn't that who they are? Gorham asked. Niflheim, no. There are a dozen and a half planets of the old Federation that still have hyperdrive, and they're all civilized. That's if civilized is what Gilgamesh is, he added. These are homemade barbarians. Workers and peasants who revolted to seize and divide the wealth, and then found they'd smashed the means of production and killed off all the technical brains. Survivors on planets hit during the interstellar wars from the 11th to the 13th centuries who lost the machinery of civilization. Followers of political leaders on local dictatorship planets. Companies of mercenaries thrown out of employment and living by pillage. Religious fanatics following self-anointed prophets. You think we don't have plenty of neo-barbarian material here on Graham? Trask demanded. If you do, take a look around. Glasspith, somebody said. That collection of overripe gallows fruit Andre Dunnan's recruited, Rathmore mentioned. Alex Gorham was grumbling that his shipyard was full of them. Agitators stirring up trouble, trying to organize a strike to get rid of the robots. Yes, Harkerman pounced on that last. I know of at least 40 instances on a dozen and a half planets in the last eight centuries of anti-technological movements. They had them back on Terra, back as far as the second century pre-atomic. And after Venus seceded from the First Federation, the Second Federation was organized. You're interested in history, Rathmore asked. A hobby. All spacemen have hobbies. There's very little work aboard the ship in hyperspace. Boredom is the worst enemy. My guns and missiles officer, Van Larch, is a painter. 
Most of his work was lost with the Coruscant on Durandal, but he kept us from starving a few times on Flambeurs by painting pictures and selling them. My hyperspatial astrogator, Guat Kirby, composes music. He tries to express the mathematics of hyperspatial theory in musical terms. I don't care much for it myself, he admitted. I study history, you know. It's odd. Practically everything that's happened on any of the inhabited planets happened on Terra before the first spaceship. The garden immediately around them was quiet now. Everybody was over by the landing stage escalators. Arkhamen would have said more, but at that moment... He saw half a dozen of Cesar Carval's uniformed guardsmen run past. They were helmeted, men in bulletproofs. One of them had an auto rifle, and the rest carried knobbed plastic truncheons. The space viking set down his drink. Let's go, he said. Our host is calling up his troops. I think the guests ought to find battle stations too. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.